$2.43 billion. That is how big the Australian gaming industry is. 68% of us play video games, from the big dramatic first-person shooters to casual games like Candy Crush. But also, around 20% live with a disability. So are games, the games that we play every day, are they being inclusive of that market? This week on Download This Show, gamers and developers talk about making gaming more accessible, the barriers, the opportunities, and the future. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Incredible panel that has split across so many different parts of the world. Firstly, I'm going to take you to Wellington. Uh, Humphrey Hanley from No Hands, No Excuses. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. So you are a content creator, you're an accessibility specialist, and you're in Wellington right now. Um, Tell me what it is you do. All sorts of things, but mainly I love to do things like play video games <laughs> on Twitch. I focus on playing the video games that people with 10 fingers struggle to play uh, while I'm sitting here with no fingers at all, hence the no hands, no excuses in the name. Dare I ask how it is that you've come to have no fingers? Yeah, good question. So I have a genetic condition called epidermolysis bullosa, uh, which is long and complicated Latin, essentially, for skin that just doesn't stay attached properly uh, and blisters and scars quite badly with any sort of friction or bumps and knocks or just doing daily jobs like opening a car door or picking up a glass. All sorts of things can cause micro damage that have essentially just meant my entire fingers have scarred up kind of like if you made a fist and dipped it in wax over and over again until everything was just a club essentially is what my hands are like. So how is it that you entered the world of gaming then from that starting point? Well, my starting point, actually, when I was born, I had all my fingers and uh, they've just gradually got worse and worse as I've got older. So I've had the joy essentially of, uh, learning to play video games when I I had more fingers and gradually adapting to different technology and different accessibility issues as I've got older. And now the joy is that technology is once again catching up to where my needs are in terms of hardware solutions, 3D printing magic, all sorts of things like that. And we'll definitely get into more of that. But I did want to ask you about your, your Twitch streaming career, right? So for people listening that may not be familiar with Twitch, you're, you're broadcasting as you're gaming. People follow you. It's hugely popular. Why did you decide to, to launch into Twitch streaming? I love it. It's hugely popular. I'll keep with that. <laughs> not, that. not the entirety of Twitch. Just you. Specifically yeah. you. Hugely yeah, popular. Specifically. <laughs> I, so I started content creating on YouTube, in fact, as a way to sort of vlog a journey back to health after some pretty significant surgery. And I got a GoPro for Christmas and started recording my workout sessions, getting back into the gym, getting healthy again, and literally getting back on my feet. And that is where the No Hands, No Excuses name came about. But then I discovered Twitch as a platform where people were playing video games, which I absolutely have always loved, and also for an audience that they could interact with live. And I 
I guess I just really resonated with that whole ability to show what I could do without any fingers, playing the video games that feel like you probably should have 12 fingers to hit all the <laughs> buttons that you need, and get to talk to an audience live about what it's like to live with disability, why accessibility is important, and just you know, where the best coffee is. <laughs> Humphrey, we'll hear more from you in a sec, but I want to introduce some of our other panellists. We have our official gamer, right? Now we're going to move on to our game developer. Ellen Urick joins us from Sydney. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thanks. I love great that to I, be here. I love that I pretended somehow like you don't also game, like you only make them and never yeah. play them. <laughs> well, <laughs> tell me what it, it is you do. It does get unbalanced. <laughs> I work at Blowfish Studios, which is a independent game developers and publishers. I am a senior producer and also the studio narrative director. So I look at things from a kind of a scheduling perspective, getting things out, making sure things are on time, on budget and to a good high quality, as well as focusing on the storytelling across the games. And at the same time, you're also living with something called POTS. And I'm going to let you explain what POTS is, because I feel like it's yeah. the sort of acronym I will mangle. Look, it's, it's POTS. You can call it that. That's totally fine. It's short for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is a form of dysautonomia, which is if, if you remember a few years ago when the yellow wiggle had to resign because he was having issues with his autonomic nervous system. So that kind of regulates a lot of things like heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, your whole body system. So um, that was something that I was sort of struggling with in unknown, unexpected ways since I was fairly young, sort of puberty-ish. But it was something that only got diagnosed in my mid-20s when it got really, really bad. And one of the ways that it really impacted on me is I couldn't, like I was getting anxious, I was getting depressed, I was getting brain fog, and I couldn't handle a lot of the games that I used to like playing. I couldn't handle the pressure of them, the stress of them. I couldn't respond as quickly as I wanted to. So I really had to sort of reassess the games that I liked to play. And so how did that change the way you developed games, your, your day job, I guess? So at that point, it was during the fun global financial crisis. So, so not fun. only My did I, take... I remember it so, so much joy. <laughs> Oh my goodness, and all the game studios shutting. So not only did I take a little, you know, hiatus, so did the games industry at that point. But it made me start to look at the way that not only games could be made more accessible, but kind of from the perspective of what a casual gamer is as opposed to a hardcore gamer and how to make games more casual and the ways that especially as people age, for example, they may not be able to play games in that hardcore way as well. And finally, Meredith Hall joins us, co-founder of Accessibility Unlocked. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell me, how did you get involved with Accessibility Unlocked? What was uh, the impetus for co-founding it? Yeah, I'd been in game development for a little while. And ever since I had entered being someone with a disability myself, I had seen a lot of my colleagues and friends struggling with the ways in which trying to do game development, which is a very intense career <laughs> to get into with a lot of pressures and a lot of things to consider at any one time. And those friends of mine were really struggling with the ways in which their disability impacted their working life, their home life. So myself and a friend uh, based over in Wellington as well, decided to start an organisation that could support those developers with resources, but also support directors of companies who are hiring people in this industry and want to create more accessible workspaces and more accessible games. You know, we, we use the term disability as a sort of a coverall, but actually what it covers is a multitude of different um, issues. So obviously there's motor issues, cognitive issues, uh, speech and vision and hearing that all kind of come into play here. 
if somebody was listening to this right now and was interested in making a game, what are the sorts of things that need to be considered with designing a game for accessibility? Because we're, we're talking about a sort of a, I guess, an ecosystem of issues here that you want to take into account so that you have the most inclusive game possible. Absolutely. And you're exactly right when you say it's an ecosystem of issues. I think you've touched on a couple in terms of cognitive and and motor function and things like that. But accessibility as well goes so beyond. There are a lot of people who may be dealing with a disability sort of temporarily. Maybe they've broken a bone and they can no longer engage with things in the way they used to. So you do need to consider a really broad range of options. And I think that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. When you think about accessibility, you want to be thinking about options. You can't provide every option, but you can look at what you're creating with a critical eye and go, okay, if I put myself in the shoes of of a different person, or if I actually go and ask that person to take a look at what I'm creating and to tell me what their experience is of it, because I don't have that lived experience, you can end up finding a lot of ways that you can embed options into what you're creating that will actually make it more accessible for people. Humphrey, have game developers been taking this seriously? Definitely taking it seriously. I I think much more so in in recent history with the sort of publicity especially that games that have done accessibility well have been getting now there is actually a lot of backlash against developers that might put out what would be especially a triple a type game if they haven't taken accessibility into account it's not just a it's nice to have for some people it's more of a hang on why haven't you done this now So is there an example that stands out to you of of where it's been done well? There's been quite a few recently, especially now that we're getting to see things like the Game Awards actually celebrate accessibility by providing that as a category for an award. So some of the games that came up in that category last year now running were things like The Last of Us 2 that has a phenomenal number of accessibility features in it, especially for blind gamers. Other games include several of the Ubisoft titles like Assassin's Creed or Watch Dogs had several accessibility things in them. And even the game uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales not only had accessibility taken into account, it also featured characters using sign language as a way to communicate. Wow. So, Ellen, you have actually been actively involved in developing games and you're constantly thinking about this sort of stuff. Take me back to your first experiences of actually developing a game and going, all right, let's think about how to, to do this inclusively. Let's think about the range of disabled experiences we can, we can kind of accommodate for. What was your starting point? So my starting point was, uh, I think it was 2008, 2009, when I was working on a soccer MMO that was, it's still unreleased to this day, just <laughs> the way the games industry works. Um, but one of the things that I was in charge of was overseeing the way some of the soccer kits might work together for like home and away or just opposing teams. And we actually had about three people on staff that had different forms of colour blindness. So it was very interesting to then go from you know, something that we kind of weren't actively thinking about at the time and saying, okay, here are some options. And, you know, within the studio saying, does this look good to everyone? And then these three people said, oh, well, actually I've got a color blindness and that doesn't look right to me. So then we were able to actually, you know, use those people to help us choose a, a set of kits that would work together and would be very, very readable. Right. And so, you know, a little bit earlier, I mentioned that there is, I guess, an ecosystem of things to consider here. There's motor functions, there's speech, there's hearing. 
how are you factoring that ecosystem in when you work on a game? Can you accommodate for, for all? I, I know it's a very big question, but I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around what are the most practical things you can do as a game developer to make something that works for as many people as possible? Yeah, so it, it really comes down to a few different things. I mean, for example, I'm just going to say from the outset that with a, with a larger company, with a larger budget, with a larger team, studio, et cetera, it is easier to um, factor in that development. For, for a small studio, and we publish a lot of independent teams, which it could just be one or two developers, it is often, unfortunately, an afterthought and it is something that they're kind of rushing to the finish line anyway and so it becomes something that they're not necessarily thinking about first and foremost. A very, very basic one is thinking about things like can we allow players to change the key bindings, for example, or if there's any voiceovers, are there going to be subtitles? Are we going to make sure that people can actually read it? Even having voiceovers as well as subtitles is in itself an accessibility thing as well. So it's something that ideally should be thought about very early on and then checked in throughout the development process. But yeah, there's a lot to consider. And as, as Humphrey said, Naughty Dog did an amazing job. I think it was like 60 plus um, settings that you could put on for different types of accessibility requirements. And some people would use them because they needed to, and some people use them just because they made their game experience better and, and easier. Another accessibility thing that people forget about is just difficulty levels of not just having one set really, really difficult gameplay style, but also allowing for people that want to play it at, a, at an easier, more kind of casual, so to speak, or more accessible difficulty level. If they just want to play for the story, then they can play for the story. If they really want a challenge, then they can play for the challenge and not the story. But understanding that it's also because, as Humphrey said, a lot of these games feel like you need 12 fingers to play them. And I know the average person doesn't have 12 fingers, so it's, it's something don't to they? keep in mind as oh. well. <laughs> well. I don't. <laughs> I can't. I'm no expert. I don't know. <laughs> the um, irony in a lot of that, though, with those titles, especially like the ones that have won awards for accessibility for their inclusivity of gaming, is they're locked to me because they're on a platform mm. where physically I can't actually use the platform because mm. it doesn't have a controller I can hold. Well, this so is what I was going to ask. Is it's like, what's, what, are those... what have been the, 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 like, the developments that have made it actually easier for you? Like, have there been like defined moments where actually suddenly a whole range of gaming was, was suddenly open because they changed something? Now, not to sound like a shill for Xbox, but <laughs> the Xbox Adaptive Controller has been huge, especially for people like me that have motor issues and literally cannot physically hit all the buttons in your Xbox controller or PlayStation controller. The Xbox Adaptive Controller that they released 2018, I think, has been an incredible advancement. It was literally the first time I could ever play an Xbox because even back when I did have fingers to play on in the Xbox, their controllers were just too big for my, my hands. It's essentially just a little box that sits on my desk and has a whole lot of plugs that I can plug in the back of it that then connect to different buttons and switches and pedals under my desk as alternative ways of hitting all the buttons you'd see on a regular controller. And it's available generally on a shelf next to all the other controllers. So not only is it accessibility, it's inclusion as well. Right, so that means that basically you and anybody else can mix and match the controller depending on what actually works best for them. Yeah, absolutely. 
and options. It, and it all sort of connects and it all sort options. of works. It does. And again, another great company that I, I do a lot with, Logitech, have put out a whole kit of buttons and switches for, I think it's 100 bucks Aussie, uh, something like that. And you get a dozen different kinds of buttons and switches that you can plug into this Xbox thing and set them up however you want them on your desk. It even comes with a little Velcro thing that goes around a leg or an arm so you could attach the buttons wherever you wanted to hit them, wherever you could get movement or function, uh, whatever limb or finger or whatever it is that help you hit buttons, basically. And then that becomes the triggers or the XYZs or the uh, ABCs, etc., of a controller. So there's a range of other consoles out there. Is there equivalents out there for other platforms as well? Not that I've come across that don't require you to also have some kind of an engineering degree from what I've seen. I don't know if the <laughs> others have come across any yet, but there are certainly ways of making it happen, but none that are just native plug-in and have fun kind of things. Why is that, Meredith? I think it's a combination of things. I think when you're talking about the independent developers, and this is sort of going back to, to what Ellen was saying, for a lot of those teams, there's a lot of fear associated with engaging with accessibility. They don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. They don't want to ask the wrong question. And I think when you broaden that out to large studios that or large platforms that are dealing with a huge amount of, of pressures, whether that's from stakeholders or from, from the public, often it's one of those things that does just get left behind. I think... It is that concern of, well, if we can't cover everyone, how do we approach this? And that process of learning about what your community actually needs is a long process. I think we're seeing that with some of the development studios because they know their game and they know their product and they know how they want it to be accessible to their audience. But I think for a lot of them in terms of the hardware side of things, they're in the process of understanding their hardware of their console and how it's going to engage with audience. And sometimes it takes a lot and it takes a lot of internal champions to start to step forward, bring the information that those people need that they may not have access to and start to make a push internally for that sort of hardware and those sort of options externally. Ellen, what are the sorts of barriers to people living with a disability actually getting into the development community, actually working on the other side of the, the console, as it were, and actually helping develop games and, and build hardware. Are there barriers that still need to be leapt over there? Look, I think it is a an individual thing as to what your disability is and yeah, how that impacts you. But, yeah, as Meredith kind of touched on as well earlier, there is a lot of companies do ha require a lot of time spent in development. Not every company and a lot of the smaller studios uh, are combating this. You'll often see people who have come from big AAA companies that have said, I don't want to do crunch anymore. I don't want to do overtime for years on end, months you probably, on end. Uh, just for people that aren't in the industry, you should probably explain what crunch is because it's quite a common, yeah. common described experience <laughs> for people who work in the gaming industry. Oh, yeah. So, um, so crunch is... <laughs> I know, I know. So crunch is basically, it's that rush to the finish line, even if the finish line keeps shifting. So it's basically uh, mandatory or optional overtime or passion-led overtime. Passion-led overtime. Mm -hmm. Wow, that might be my favourite euphemism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm thinking um, of a few industries that one applies to. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a fun thing, but it is rife in a lot of companies because developers want to create games to a very high standard for their own pride as much as anything else and want to get it out on time and want to get it to players. 
And game development, like software development in general, notoriously will have lots of issues, lots of bugs, lots of things that come up. And when you fix one bug, you might discover two, and then you kind of have to sit there and fix it and try and get there. And the finish line keeps looming or shifting or requirements keep changing. So it is an extended period of overtime, usually with pressure from higher-ups and peers, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. Which is also extremely inaccessible if you're someone in that environment with a disability. Yes. If you're someone that really struggles with fatigue or you're someone that really struggles with, you know, being on for 8 to 12 to, you know, 20 hours a day, mm -hmm. that's something that is immediately kind of an impossible hill for you to climb. And when you are put in a position by your directors or your leaders where that's expected, you can't sustain a, a role in this industry for a long time. That's a marginalisation that sets you up to fail. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a studio culture or a team around you that is actively planning and supporting you, whether that's, you know, making remote work more accessible to you or whether that's setting you up with regular check-ins in terms of what you need and how you need to be supported, because again, it's different for everyone, you are going to be in an environment that is a lot more difficult for you than some of your peers to be able to perform at that level. And does that mean that you then don't get access to the same promotions? Does that mean that you then don't get access to the same support? It can be a really isolating experience if you're the only person yeah. in a team with a disability that is now trying to perform at a standard of your colleagues who are abled and don't have those difficulties to face. In terms of how you would go about changing that culture, um, Meredith, I know this is like day in, day out work. What is it that you do to shift that culture, right? Before we even talk about specific areas of, of disability, are there things you can do to shift that culture? Absolutely. And I do think it a lot of the time comes down to communication, whether that's communication internally amongst teams, whether that's communication to the broader public. You do kind of need to have someone in your team that cares about this and is willing to take it on as their, their thing to manage and their thing to consider. I have worked with a team working on a, a mobile game and one of the things that we did was making sure that we had a long list of all of the accessibility options and not even necessarily just accessibility options that we were able to actively change or impact, but just details about the game that we could communicate to our audience so that they knew whether or not they could play it before they bought it. A lot of studios don't actually communicate the detailed information about what that experience is like for an individual. And so people look at a game and they go, I don't even know if I can play this. I don't know if I can access it because no one's talking to them. No one's considering them as their audience. And it's the same sort of thing within teams. You would be amazed at how many teams have multiple people in that team who have disabilities, but aren't saying anything about it. They don't want to bring that up. They don't want to have that have an effect on how they're viewed in their career. But often when those people are given you know, space and permission and support to stand up and say, here are the things that affect me. That has a flow on effect. That team learns from that. Broader teams learn from that and they learn from the example set by the studios. So it is this sort of grassroots experience a lot of the time of just making connections with people and actually having a conversation and having a conversation where both parties are willing to be vulnerable and also willing to maybe get things wrong and to, to come into that with good faith and try and find solutions and outcomes that can support all, all sorts of people. Hmm. Humphrey, in terms of where you would like game developers to, to move next in terms of making games that are more accessible to you and to uh, people with a range of different uh, lived experiences of disability, where would you like game developers to, to move next? Move next? Well, obviously, you know, just jump ahead to the future where every single <laughs> game that ever gets made is 100% accessible to everybody. But 
In the meantime, obviously, I think it's about making sure that disabled people are involved in the process, which is what yep. makes what Meredith and the Accessibility Unlocked team are doing so important is opening those pathways for game dev to be accessible as an industry to disabled people as well. I mean, I'm, I'm actually on a panel with Meredith's co-founder next month <laughs> talking exactly about all of these things yep. uh, and including some other panelists who have only recently been able to have those conversations with their employers about their own disabilities, even though they've been in the industry for a while now. Why only so recently have they been comfortable talking about it? What, what's shifted there, do you think? Honestly, not my place to say. I don't know. <laughs> but I think it, a lot of it just comes down to people fearing things like crunch, you know, fearing that if they are open about being disabled and those kind of times come up, they could become feel like they're a liability to their company or mm. who knows exactly Or just what be viewed is. differently. Mm. Like yeah. just be looked at and as think, an employee in a different way and it is, is a massive yeah. concern for a lot of those people. And for me especially, I think when you're applying for a job and you know that you have a disability, there is a, hours of time that you sit there going, do I tick that box? Do I tick the box on the form yeah. that says this? As much as you want to believe that the practices of the company that you're going into are good and that they stand by wanting to hire diversely and wanting to hire people with disabilities, there is that voice in the back of your head that goes, are they going to read that and go, eh, maybe we'll go with this other candidate because it seems like, you know, a, a safer bet. And that can yeah. be really, really traumatising and really difficult for those people. But I think 100%. we've seen a massive change in the sort of people stepping up to lead studios and the sort of people mm -hmm. that want to create more diverse spaces of all kinds and actively making that a part of their planning and actively deciding, I'm going to show you that this environment is supportive. It's up to you whether you want to disclose to me. So a lot of the work that we do is trying to educate studios in ways they can make their studio more accessible to those people and make those places safer. Ellen, how did you find the process of being open with your workplace about living with a disability? So I'm, I'm lucky now that uh, most of my symptoms are very well managed. So it's not something that I need to talk about or really um, interferes much with me at all these days. But kind of like Meredith said, you know, there is that moment where you go and you, you look through an application and there's like, do you, do you or have you had a disability? And I'm like, hmm is it under the radar enough that I don't have to tick this? Should I tick <laughs> yep. this? Do they want me to say it? Because that'll diversify experience. Because really, you know, the, the flip side of it, ironically, is even though you may feel like a liability and even though the company may see you as a liability, it's actually good business sense to have a more diverse team because it means that the products being created are more appealing to a large number of people. So that means more people will buy the game and hooray, you know, that's what businesses want. <laughs> so it's this strange situation where it's like, yeah, like Humphrey was saying, some of these people don't feel comfortable talking about it or talking about it in depth for fear of, of those repercussions. I'm very lucky that my workplace is small. Um, pretty much everyone in top management has kids and has gone through life and has said, we don't want to have a workplace that is pushing people hard. We want people to be open. We want them to be honest with us. We want to make sure that we're supporting them so that they can do their best work in the best way that they can, basically. I think it's not restricted to game dev. I think it's across yeah. the board yeah. in human resource departments and employment <laughs> relations all over the place that 
they are becoming more accepting of accommodations. And it's also about people with disabilities understanding not only their rights, but what support is available, especially in countries like New Zealand and Australia, where we do have various levels of support for accommodations that disabled employees might need. Humphrey Hanley, thank you so much for doing the show. Pleasure. Humphrey Hanley is content creator. He is no hands, no excuses. Ellen Urich, thank you so much for coming and doing Download the Show. My pleasure. Ellen Urich is narrative and game director with Blowfish Studios and Meredith Hall, co-founder of Accessibility Unlocked. Thank you so much for coming and doing the show. Thank you. It was great. My name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show.